0: Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a biweekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm interviewing Eric Leenson, president of Soul Economics. Soul Economics is a firm that builds strong links among socially responsible enterprises throughout the Americas. Eric has been involved in socially responsible investing in business for over 25 years. Welcome to the program, Eric. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. You are involved with Cuba and economic relations there, but you also are president of a company called Soul Economics. I want to talk a lot about Cuba, but tell us what you're doing right now as president of Soul Economics.
1: Well, basically Soul Economics, it's all about enterprise solutions and solidarity. So the soul is really solution and solidarity in the Americas. It's an effort to link up initiatives, around socially responsible enterprise in the U.S. and Latin America. So right now, my primary project is in Cuba, but I also am working a bit in Central America and Brazil and other places as well.
0: Okay, so what are you doing in Cuba? With Obama's announcement in December, it feels like the floodgates should be open. What are you doing and what are your concerns about?
1: We actually started working in Cuba six years ago. So we had a sense that at some point, there would be an opening in Cuba in both directions. One, we thought the U.S. would be looking at changing relations. And of course, that took a lot longer than we expected. And why did you think that? Because it's just so obvious that the U.S. needs to do that. I mean, the pressure from Latin America has been mounting over a long period of time. The policy was totally outdated. It was a failure. I really thought that once Bush was out of office, things would begin changing fairly quickly. And Obama did make some changes that have really helped move things along. But it's taken... Quite a while to get to the point we're and at, and even
0: now, uh, Congress has to approve it releasing the Embargo Act, right? Yeah, well... So there's we, a lot of things that need to be done. Right.
1: Basically, what our work has consisted of is I have helped put together a coalition called Socially Responsible Enterprise and Local Development in Cuba. And the idea of this coalition is to take the best practices of socially responsible enterprise that exists, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, to Cuba as kind of a menu of what's possible. If one believes, and I I did think this six years ago, that the Cubans would need to make some adjustments to their economy, and sure enough, that part came true pretty soon because four years ago, basically the Cubans announced to the world that their economy wasn't working properly and they would update it in various ways, keeping socialism, of course, but at the same time bringing in a certain number of market-type reforms that would allow for more innovation. So essentially, our timing on the Cuba side was very good because what we've done over these years is taken about 50 experts, mostly from Latin America, pretty much entirely from Latin America, but also from Europe and Canada, to a lesser extent from the U.S. to Cuba for conferences to talk about subjects they'd never really talked about before that cover the range from corporate social responsibility to different types of cooperatives. The idea was to give the Cubans kind of a menu Of things that are happening in other places because they've been kind of cut off and let them choose. I mean, if they're going to be redesigning their economy, why not try to take advantage of mistakes and and lessons learned
0: other places? I'm sure one of the things you talk about is retaining the good things about Cuba. Capitalism can be a freight train when it arrives. And how are you teaching them or at least talking about keeping the things that are good about Cuba? You know, they have pretty good health, right? Medicine. And you know, I know there's a, a couple of things that the, I've seen some documentaries that they're pretty strong at. Well,
1: they're extremely strong in healthcare, medicine, and I would say, in many ways, uh, developing senses of community and participation. We had to sort of sum up the work of the project along the lines you're talking about. I would say what we're asking constantly are two questions. One is very similar to what you said. How can Cuba maintain the achievements of the revolution while significantly improving their economy? It's
0: like a new paradigm.
1: Right. And the other question along the same lines is how can they skip 20th century capitalism and move right into 21st century sustainability? Because
0: they don't even have internet, right?
1: Very limited. Yeah. Very limited internet. So basically, I mean, what I find also very interesting about this whole project is that if you look around the world today, I think everyone recognizes that our economies are broken. I mean, certainly in the capitalist Mm -hmm. world, we've seen that for quite a while, and it really came home to roost with the 2008 financial crisis. I think Mm -hmm. if you talk to young people anywhere in the world today, in the capitalist world, the future doesn't look necessarily so great. This economy isn't working. So what's really interesting is I think the Cubans have come to the same conclusion, that their economy really isn't working. And they've said that publicly many times. Interestingly, they phrased it in a way typically many things that go wrong in Cuba are blamed on the U.S. blockade. Now, there's no doubt the blockade is incredibly strong.
0: You're talking about the embargo? The embargo. Okay. The
1: Cubans call it blockade. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. The embargo. There's no doubt that it is it is incredibly intense and it really hurts Cuban economy. But the Cubans are now in a mode where they're recognizing that they've made mistakes as well. So this comes to light in the idea that there needs to be some adjustment in the economy. Now, what that means is they are not giving up the notion that Cuba will remain a socialist country. The idea is that strategic economic services and industries will stay in state hands. They will not be privatized. Like, for instance? For instance, anything to do with education, health care, power generation, large large producers. So utilities? Small- utilities will stay in, in state public hands, mm-hmm. all those sorts of things. But that there's a huge realm within the economy that really can be privatized. And let's say if before Cuba was 95 percent, the employees were state workers. Their goal over the next few years is to reduce that to about half and half so that half of the economy would become private.
0: Is there any model in the world that is doing something like that now?
1: Not quite like that. I mean, you know, keep in mind that Cuba is one of the few holdouts of the old socialist world. There aren't too many socialist countries. And when Eastern Europe and Russia – Soviet Union fell apart. They were basically bought lock, stock and barrel by the local capitalists or by international capitalists. Cubans are very sensitive to that, where you could make a comparison, perhaps and this is something that Cubans do look at a lot, would be China and Vietnam. Because in China and Vietnam, while you have a communist system and the state still controls much of the industry, there is a huge private sector. And this is one of the debates raging in in Cuba, of course, is if they're going to adopt new ways of doing things, who are they looking to? It's a, a complex discussion, but very fascinating. First of all, China is deeply embedded economically, Throughout Latin America, many of the countries that were you know, typically U.S. client states economically now have more trade with China than they do uh, with the U.S., including countries like Brazil, Peru, and across the board, quite a few of them, number one. Number two, there's another thing that needs to be dispelled that most Americans – don't understand, which is about the embargo. Really, the United States policy was to isolate Cuba. The United States wound up only isolating itself because everyone else in the world is in Cuba. It's true the Chinese are making significant investments, but the Europeans are there. The larger South American countries are there. Russia is there. It's the U.S. that's isolated.
0: So why do they need us? Do they need us?
1: Well, there there are a couple of factors here. Look at the geography. The U.S. is so close. I mean, it's 90 miles away. It's a logical market and a logical trading partner. I mean, it would reduce costs significantly if Cuba had access to U.S. market and vice versa. Number two... And right now, from a strategic point of view, it's actually probably more important, is because the United States has Cuba on the list of terrorist countries. It has incredibly chilling effect on other countries and institutions' willingness to deal with Cuba financially. So where the United States has been successful with the blockade, the embargo, is in financial transactions. Over the last couple of years, and this is sort of ironic, under Obama, the financial embargo has strengthened considerably. And over the last few years, several banks in Europe have been fined hundreds of millions of dollars for having transactions, normal transactions with Cuba. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And the reason it's gotten tightened is because there's been so much emphasis on the whole issue of anti-terrorism. So Cuba is maintained laughably and artificially on the terrorist list just to, you know, harass them. It's got nothing to do with terrorism because Cuba doesn't threaten anyone. In fact, Cuba has been involved, you know, significantly in the whole peace process going on in Colombia, which everyone would love to see result in, in a truce between the government and the guerrilla movements. And
0: haven't they been helping us with the drug trade in Mexico and the, the drug cartels? And hasn't there been some cooperation? There's been
1: cooperation on a few fronts. You know, the whole question of U.S. politics towards Cuba has got nothing to do with foreign policy. It's all about U.S. domestic politics and a few Cuban-American politicians that just have a have had a uh, stranglehold over over U.S. foreign policy. But getting back to okay, how could Cuba try to benefit from encouraging certain elements of capitalism uh, while maintaining socialism? One other thing that needs to be said, and I don't want to really underestimate, it, is the Cuban economy isn't really bad shape. I mean, it's really questionable in my mind how long it can go on in the condition it's in. And one other thing that's become very interesting, and I think symbolic is the fact that you have more and more emigration, legal emigration from Cuba to other places because young people don't see opportunities. Right. Some of the best and brightest people who, believe me, they're not against the system. They're all in favor of a socialistic system, but they don't see it performing in a way that will And there's no incentive for them. them
0: to stay. Right. To they're start, because there's not really an entrepreneurial no. pathway.
1: No. Cuba is very advanced in certain areas, such as biotechnology. They're actually big exporters of biotech products around the world. But, you know, the number of positions are limited. And because of the embargo and other factors, you know, if you're a professional, your resources are going to be very limited in terms of what you can do. So it is it is very important that the Cubans improve their economy. And several of the measures they're taking to do that are, one, they are opening up the idea that there can be a lot more private enterprise, you know, allow people to develop their skills. I mean, right now, it's still kind of it's in its in emerging stages. And about 500,000 people now in Cuba are self-employed or have small businesses. Unfortunately, the government is very tightly regulating what those businesses can be. And for the most part, they tend to be service businesses. And how are they How are they giving
0: these people money to start businesses, or are they? There
1: are loans available, but the reality is most people that start businesses in Cuba are doing it based on having connections in the exterior, family members. Who send them capital? So there's huge flows of money going from, say, Miami to um, Havana to establish small businesses. So that's that's one area. The other area that's important is the government is really looking towards the development of cooperatives as a really key part of the economy in terms of furthering private enterprise because cooperatives are private. But at the same time, do inter- they not
0: have any cooperatives there?
1: Well, it's interesting. Cuba has a long history of agricultural cooperatives. Ever since the time of the revolution, Cuba has fostered a cooperative movement. Now, people don't realize this, but about 30% of the land in Cuba is still privately owned. I mean, one of the promises of the revolution was to give land to the peasants, and they actually did that. And that land, the private nature of land has remained sacrosanct over time. Uh, So there's a long experience with cooperatives in the agricultural sector with mixed results. There's never been a policy of... Cooperatives in the urban sector. So, for example, before every business, restaurants, beauty parlors, taxi drivers, little bus companies, all state owned and regulated. Now, these are becoming cooperatives. And it's giving people that are members much more incentive to produce, they can earn better. And from the Cuban perspective, it's desirable because it's a more socialistic type of enterprise. What the Cubans are very, very clear about, and I have to admit, coming from the U.S., it's almost hard to understand sometimes how totally obsessed they are about trying to not have disparities in income. So they really work hard to try to have income, you know, different levels of income equality. And this is creating, this new opening is creating a big problem because it is creating inequality gaps, especially against people who don't have relatives in the exterior. And guess what? If you're black, if you're you know, living in the countryside as opposed to the city, uh, if you're probably a, a single woman, you probably don't have the same connections that other people do. So this is So the is same exacerbating. problems that we
0: experience in yeah. the West are appearing there? Is that what yeah, you're I saying? mean to
1: a lesser extent because yeah. there is a strong commitment to a social safety net. It's not mm-hmm. the same. It's not like people got, get left behind in the same way at all. But there's the potential for that, and the government is very conscious of it.
0: Is this going to happen quickly, do you think? No,
1: well, this is happening slowly. It's going to be slow. It's going to be slow. I mean, if, I think a lot of people would say it's going too slowly because, in a way, there is a race against time to make the economic improvement. And the other piece i, I got to mention that's very important is while all this is, is very central to improving the economy and, and building more democracy within the economy, Cuba is not going to be successful. If they can't reform their state industries, in other words, if the big companies are staying state owned or and they're now bringing in more foreign investment on the state owned companies, they are making some really important reforms about decentralizing them. Whereas before everything was planned in a ministry in Havana, they're giving a lot more control, decentralizing, decentralizing. To those companies, but also to the local governments. And they're, they're hoping that the local governments, municipal governments, will work closely with the economic groups to really look out for the welfare more of local communities. But this is in theory. I mean, this is something that's just being rolled out now. The other element, of course, is that Cuba needs a lot more foreign investment. And, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see. Are we able to now no. invest?
0: No. Well, you think that will happen? that's as part, part of, the, of, the, embargo of act? the embargo act. Okay. Yeah,
1: I mean in other words, if you look at the reality of the US situation, let's be real clear. What's happened is President Obama under executive authority is pretty much going about as far as he can without having to get things approved by Congress. Although with the Republican Congress, they're looking for ways to sneak in ways to control control things like approving budgets. Like the Senate has to approve an ambassador That sort of thing. But essentially what's happened is there's been a normalization of diplomatic relations, which means that there can be upgrades from the current relationship. There's going to be embassies, you know, in the respective countries. President has also said he is going to make significant adjustments in trade and commerce relations. There are things that he can do under presidential authority. So, for example, a number of years ago, even after the embargo went into effect, The the strengthening of the embargo in the 90s, there was legislation passed by Congress which allows the president to authorize the sale of U.S. goods to Cuba in the areas of food and medicines. At one point, the United States was selling $700 million worth of food to Cuba a year. That amount has fallen off not because the Cubans aren't interested in buying. It's because under the embargo, it's interesting, they can sell food, but they can't offer credit. So one of the things that they're looking at now would be to make credit more accessible. It's estimated that the the Cubans would probably be buying $2 billion a year of goods from the United States. So
0: in other words, creating a situation where they can be in greater debt to us?
1: When you're talking about trade debt, you're talking about generally short-term debt. It's not going to be necessarily long-term. The other thing that's happening is that The Obama saying he's he's going to allow U.S. banks to begin relationships with Cuban banks, which right now doesn't happen, that he would expand the nature of uh, people to people travel to Cuba so that people, many more people could go to Cuba more easily and they could actually use their credit cards when they're in Cuba, Mm -hmm. which you can't do today. And really importantly is one of the announcements was that the U.S. would re-examine whether or not Cuba should be on the terrorist list.
0: That and, would be really important.
1: And that would be important. really important. Yeah. I, I would be willing to bet almost anything that that's a formality. They're going to take Cuba off the terrorist list. They just didn't want to do it all in one fell swoop. They want to make it look like they're really making an effort. But, it's, you know, it's, it's almost funny. When the U.S. – does a report, they have to the president has to sign off, I think, every six months on countries if they should remain on the terrorist list or not. When you read the report that's presented to the president, there's nothing that even suggests that Cuba is a terrorist country. And yet you have countries like North Korea, which isn't on the terrorist list.
0: Are you involved in any of Obama's consultations about Cuba?
1: Indirectly. I mean we have developed a number of resources around different things. We have very good contacts in Cuba with different sectors that are are promoting these things. And, you know, we have informal contacts with the State Department and other places.
0: You've got quite a background in the Americas, both for, you know, social enterprise movements and and various things. You also were a co-founder of La Pena Cultural Center here in Berkeley. Right. I want to talk about your background. How did you get so involved in the Americas, and Latin America specifically?
1: You know, it's funny, when I was, um, I grew up on the East Coast, and when I was 15, I went on this trip organized by a minister with about 30 other teens to Mexico. I just fell in love with it. And somehow I got interested. I, started, I was studying Spanish, and then when I was in university, I studied international affairs in Latin America. I, I got a Fulbright scholarship and arrived in, in Chile one week before Allende was elected president. So <laughs> my wife is from Argentina, so it's a, you know, yeah. it's a pretty deep relationship.
0: And how did you end up in the Bay Area then?
1: Basically I came out here on kind of a lark and just said, you know what? This is great out here. I think I'll stay in the Bay Area. So I've been I've been in the Berkeley area since uh, late 71.
0: You were CEO of Progressive Asset Management. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit because it was a first at the time, 25 right. some years ago. Right.
1: Well, when we started Progressive Asset Management, it was the first full-service brokerage firm to specialize in socially responsible investing and to be fair, I mean, there were a group of us who started. It was a group of about 8 or 10 people and and some of you remember, may remember Peter Camejo. he was you know instrumental and he was the first CEO of John Harrington, another person and I was there from the beginning and uh, as an officer and as, as an investment advisor and I became CEO later on and I was CEO for a number of years, but not as the founding CEO but it was I think it was an important experience and one which allowed me also to really see the role that business and finance can play in trying to advance progressive causes, Social ideas. Social yeah. ideas, yeah.
0: Right. Tell me about La Peña because, you know, that's kind of an institution here in Berkeley. How right. did that get started and why?
1: Well, essentially, as I mentioned, I was in Chile. During the Allende government, I was there for about the first year and a half. And then when I got back here and came out to the Bay Area, you know, it was obvious that the United States was intervening in Chile. Even before the coup, they had a economic blockade going against Chile, and they were obviously supporting the military and others. So a group of us began organizing around that issue. Peñas are popular throughout Latin America, well, especially in the southern Cone, Chile, Argentina. And traditionally, they were gatherings at the time of harvest to celebrate the harvest and to socialize, etc. What happened was in, in Chile in the 1960s, there was a new type of peña created in urban areas, which essentially, Violeta Parra was one of the founders of this, of this movement, brought the new song with it. So in other words, it became politicized in which it became places that were talking about struggle, talking about the need to make significant political change. Now, in Chile, one of the leading proponents of that a really loved, beloved person who was part of the Peña de los Parra was a folk singer named Victor Jara, who has become internationally famous because he was killed by the junta at the time of the coup. Just coincidentally, I got to meet him and we became friends. So I did know him during my time in Chile. I would go to his house for dinner and that sort of thing. And we were in communication before the coup. So at the time of the coup, of course, all of our work escalated as you know the, the dreadful events became clear. So we really started organizing our work here in the Bay Area pretty much through Chile solidarity work through a group called Non-Intervention in Chile, of which I was the first coordinator. But we decided that if we could open... A place like La Pena that could provide cultural entertainment, political discussion, food and drink, that would be a great way of trying to educate people about the struggle, really not only in Chile but worldwide, about what imperialism was all about. So, as kind of our response, some of you may remember that the coup in Chile took place on September 11th. I mean, that's a deadly day, apparently. So, we organized, we incorporated La Pena. On September eleventh, nineteen 1974, the year after the coup, <laughs> as a sort of symbol of our resistance against it, and at that time uh, there were very few Chileans in this area that were involved. Over the next couple of years, there began to come a small stream of Chilean refugees who had been ex-political prisoners, tortured, etc. That became kind of a social base. Also, of La Pena, fortunately, we were able to provide work for a number of them, and you know, it really consolidated uh, a relationship between the Bay Area and the Chilean community, which is something, of course, we're all very proud of and mm-hmm. continues to this day. So, I was
0: gonna ask you what your involvement is today. Well,
1: in... right now, I'm actually the treasurer. Oh. <laughs> I've come and gone at, at different times. We're in a moment where we're celebrating our 40th anniversary.
0: What are they seeking to accomplish now?
1: We've just gone through, I would say, a, a needed generational transformation that up until the last couple of years, you know, most of us, most of the people involved, were you know people who'd grown up in the '60s or '70s. Right now we have a wonderful new executive director, Kristen Sprogna, and a young staff. Probably the average age is in their low 30s. So we're sort of in the process of redefining what's relevant today, 40 years later. Now there's a strong, strong tradition around Latin America, and that will continue. There's a great deal of interest. Well,
0: there's still a lot going on. I oh, mean, yeah. No, there's, you al- just...
1: there's always things going on. Yeah. Latin America will always remain a focus. But we've got to look at what are, what are the crucial issues of the day. Not only that, but for those of you in Berkeley who have been around La Pena for a while, I think you'll recognize that La Pena has always been open to oppressed people in its history. You know, people don't, don't know this, but even before we opened – when we first opened back in 75 – A couple of the groups that use La Pena very regularly were one was the um, Vietnamese students in the United States who were studying here. You know, this is before the war ended (laughs) in Vietnam. It ended, you know, in in 75.
0: So it's kind of a sanctuary for a
1: lot. Yeah. It was the place where the Iranian students met who were fighting against the Shah uh, of Iran. It became really important, obviously, all those years in the struggle against Chile, but also during the war's The Civil Wars in Central America, the Revolutionary Wars, La Pena was a real center of activity. And it's been a place that I think a lot of people have always felt comfortable with. Gays and lesbians have always felt La Pena was open to them. Uh, Members of the black community have felt that way. It's kind of been a space that I hope has really promoted this idea that we're all here together living and struggling for a better world. So I think each generation has to take on... What are the struggles of this time? If I have one message that I'd like to shoot out there, I think it's the following. And that is kind of what I was saying before, that we're all looking for alternative economies that can work and that can provide good standards for human beings that aren't just all about profit for large corporations. Right? This is being approached in different ways in different places. Cuba is particularly interesting because Cuba is coming at it from a socialist point of view, whereas the rest of us are coming at it from a capitalist point of view. But there's actually a number of things that we share in common. I think it's really important that we here in the States take a better look at what's going on in other places around the world because we tend to be a little provincial here and and sort of U.S.-centric, where we think everything is happening here. And in reality, there is much more going on in other places in trying to do some of these things than is happening here. From my perspective, Latin America has really been a leader in this. If you look at what's going on in countries like uh, Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia, some of the experiments going on in, in Venezuela, it's, it's kind of interesting. But it's not only in those countries. You have it in Europe. I mean, when you have severe economic crisis – It kind of brings out new inventions and new ideas. Innovations. Innovations. So you see it a lot in Spain, in France, in, in Europe. There's a world movement. It's called, I mean, there's different names for it, but it's called social and solidarity economy. And we have some of it here. I've been amazed. One of the countries that's leading the charge right now is South Korea there's really a vibrant alternative economy movement in South Korea, but the point I want to make is I think we need to be more engaged with them another Another thing that I learned on this voyage is Canada, for example, not all of Canada but Quebec. They have a thriving social and solidarity economy, something like ten to fifteen percent of the economy is made up of what we would call kind of alternatives that are much more sensitive towards mm-hmm. the needs of, of people so I think it's really important for us to get engaged in that participation. Of well, social enterprise. It's social enterprise. Yeah. That's part of what I'm trying to do in, in, in the work I'm doing. Well, speaking of engagement, company.
0: how would a listener who is interested in what you're doing get a hold of you? And do you have a website? Well, I think
1: could- the best way is to look at my website. And okay. that's com. There's lots of information about Cuba. I mean, the, the biggest focus is on the work with Cuba. But I also try to promote Other ideas about understanding what's going on internationally, you can actually learn a lot about some of the other movements that are happening internationally. Uh, Interestingly, one organization is becoming a stronger and stronger proponent of social and solidarity economy is the United Nations. And they're doing some really interesting things.
0: That's great. So, Eric, when are you going to Cuba next?
1: For the next month or so. I
0: tend to go three or four
1: times a year. Yeah, and I, I certainly encourage people to go to Cuba to see it, uh, to get a, a feel for it, because it is really, I mean, every place is unique, but Cuba is really unique. <laughs> in a sense, it's so different from other places, and there's still such a, a sense of community, one. And on the other hand, historically, it's so fascinating because you still are back in the sort of 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. In, in many ways. It's a, time capsule. it's a
0: time capsule. Well, Eric, thank you for being on our program.
1: Great. Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: You've been listening to Method to the Madness bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. If you have questions or comments about this show, go to the CalEx website and find Method to the Madness. Drop us an email. Tune in again in two weeks at this same time. Have a great weekend.